Waiting is a pain, isn't it? It's awkward, right? It's confusing. It's like, what in the world was just happening, right? It's, it's frustrating even at times. I mean, none of us like waiting, especially little kids at Christmas time. Well, actually, really, any time in regards to Christmas, um, I know, I'm pretty sure my kids were asking about how long till Christmas back in July, all right? So they, they're all about that Christmas in July thing. And now it's twice a day. How many days till Christmas? All right, can we open presents early? I mean, they just, like, waiting is not their skill set, okay? I mean, and, I mean, probably for many of us, it's not our skill set. But for us, we probably play into that by decorating for Christmas in the middle of November. I get that. Um, but... None of us like to wait. It's pain. It's awkward. It's confusing. No matter your season of life, waiting is wearisome. Whether you just want to get something boring over with, like waiting at the doctor's office, or you want to get through something that's painful that you're having to endure, or you're hoping to finally get to something that you long for, something that you're waiting for years on, waiting wears on us. Waiting is a large part of the weariness of our world. When we talk about the, the theme of this series is a weary world rejoices and, and waiting is a large part of that. And it's not something that any of us enjoy. We don't enjoy enduring it. It's really not a lot of fun to talk about. I mean, what is there to talk about, right? It's waiting. It's just it's having to be patient. And yet, learning how to wait well is a major theme of Advent, of this whole season that we're in. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than Matthew chapter 1. This whole chapter is this, really this theme of waiting and the weariness of it. And so as we walk through Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we'll even look back for a moment to, to the text from last week at the beginning. We're going to see the weariness of waiting the hope we have in our waiting, as well as our role as we wait. And so, this morning, as we dive into Matthew chapter 1, we we start with the weariness of waiting. We look back to last week's text, verses 1 through 17, and we see the weariness of Israel. It's a genealogy, right? Maybe you were just weary by the fact that we preached through a genealogy last week. I thought it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. But, but I mean, nothing about a genealogy just gets you excited, right? Matt, you did a great job, all right? But, but the genealogy just, just doesn't get us excited. But Israel, what it represents there, so much of it is a weariness of century after century of waiting. Incredible promises of God are represented here. Promises to Abraham and to David, and yet they barely tasted just a mere foretaste of those promises in their time. And the promises contrasted so much with the everyday experience of God's people. And what we see is years of infertility with Abraham, and yet he was given one son in the end. And then God asked him to sacrifice that son. Yes, he delivers him, he provides for him, but can you imagine the weariness of that? We see messed up family after messed up family after messed up king after messed up king. We see slavery in a foreign land. We see the division of God's people. We see civil war represented here. Like few seasons of peace or faithfulness. We see an exile from the promised land. 
And then we see a return to it that is honestly pretty lackluster in, uh, compared to the expectations of what their hope for the return was. And what we see is just years of weary waiting. Even the faithful that we see represented in these texts waited through generations of suffering and unfulfilled expectations. And not only do we see it in this genealogy, but as we look to the life of Joseph, this is really the, the most we see of Joseph in any of the texts, of Jesus' adopted father. And, but in this passage, we see Joseph's weariness. Verses 18 through 19, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Can you imagine being in Joseph's shoes? He's often the one that gets overlooked in the story, and, and yet if we just sit there and think about what it was like to be him, it would have to be a weary thing. I mean, it's essentially betrothed means he was, he was, he was engaged, but, but it was much more than just engagement. I mean, it was, you were practically married at that point. And what he finds out is that his soon-to-be wife is pregnant and not from him. Right? She comes to him with this, this story right? um, and, 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 and explains to him that she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. But, I mean, come on, he, Joseph has to be thinking, what kind of fool do you think I am, right? Even if he wanted to believe her, at the same time, how hard would it have been to believe? He's distraught and brokenhearted. He would have to be angry. Even more so when she tells him the story that it's from God, I mean, thinking... Yeah, right, like, like God's never done a miracle like that before. Like, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't compute. And he had been waiting for a future family for many years himself. We see here he's a just man. And, and so he's, it means he was faithfully following the Lord in the meantime, in the midst of that waiting. And how does he get rewarded, so to speak? But with losing everything that he'd hoped for. Shamed in his culture, lost hope for a, a family, his happiness, gone. Yet even then, he doesn't respond with retribution. He doesn't respond with trying to shame her back, but he carefully considers how to proceed with faithfulness and care. And certainly Joseph felt the weariness of waiting in our present world. Just like those through the centuries in the genealogies, they felt the weariness of waiting for restoration, for promises to actually be fulfilled, for the hopes and the longings that he had that, are, that were even good and godly longings. And how many of us is that? How many of you is that? true for today, that you're weary, 
I think we all feel this weariness to some degree or another in, the, in this culture that, that we live in, just the, the chaos and, the, and those kind of things. But while a variety of things contribute to our, our weary world right now, much of our weariness is connected to our struggle with waiting. Many of us are wary because we're discontent with the ordinary nature of life. Just the day in, day out grind that's not all that exciting, that's not all that flashy, that's not all that, that, that social media makes everyone's lives out to be. We long for the next big thing, the next exciting thing, the, the thing that will alleviate our boredom. And rather than embracing the ordinary nature of life and the natural boredom, boredom that can often come with that, we attempt to alleviate it by distracting ourselves with busyness and divisives. And unfortunately, like, I, like I'm guilty of this myself. Unfortunately, our attempts to alleviate our weariness with busyness and devices and a whole host of other things, maybe numb our boredom. Our weariness, it actually, it only compounds it. It only makes us more weary. Because they don't provide the hope. They don't provide the real thing. They don't give us true hope in the midst of our weariness that can sustain us. But rather, our weariness is compounded. Some of you this morning, you're, you're weary of the, the suffering that you're waiting through to end. Whether it's chronic pain, the doctors have said, hey, this is going to be something you're having to deal with the rest of your life. Or maybe ongoing struggles with particular temptations that just won't seem to go away. Or a loss that you've had in your life of a loved one for which the tears just won't dry. Our weariness is compounded by our inability to understand why. Why are these things happening to us? Why do we have to keep enduring this? And it can feel crushing. And others of you are like Joseph. We're wary of waiting for godly desires to be fulfilled. Whether that's for marriage one day or, or for kids you're struggling with infertility, or, or you're, you're longing for clarity of purpose in life, or even for the salvation of a friend or a family member that you've prayed for, you've shared the gospel with over and over again, and yet it just doesn't seem to have any effect. And our weariness in these things is compounded by our struggle to understand why our faithfulness seems to continually lack fulfillment. We're wary of waiting. I know I am, as I reflected on this passage, like just the, the weight of the weariness is heavy. But the good news of Christmas is that our weariness in waiting is given a sure hope. It's given a sure hope that can overcome our fears, our discontents, our frustrations, our discouragements. And we can go on and on about all the things we feel weighed down by in our weary waiting. Christmas is a good news message of hope for us. Like the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, declares, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's, that's the good news hope of this passage this morning. 
And that's what the angel declares to Joseph in the midst of his wariness. As he's considering, as he's wrestling, as he's struggling with what's been laid before him. He's given this incredible hope and it's the hope that we can cling to as well. It's our hope for the waiting. And if he's summed up like this, we're going to take it a piece at a time. But it was just summed up in this phrase, in this sentence, that God is at work for us and with us. That's the hopeful message of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. That's the hopeful message of Christmas, of what we're considering when we talk about Advent, of, of considering the first coming of Jesus and learning to wait faithfully for the second of coming of Jesus in the midst of a weary world. The message to you, your hope for waiting, is that God is at work for you and with you. And this is where we see that. First off, God is at work. God is at work. Verses, the end of verse 18 and the end of verse 20 both end in this way. And when talking about Jesus and Mary's pregnancy, it says it's from the Holy Spirit. Two times it repeats that phrase. And, and when there's repetition, we should pay attention. All right? And so it, two times it repeats, from the Holy Spirit. And what Matthew's driving home is that in the midst of Joseph's suffering, he's confronted with God's intimate involvement in his world. Joseph's confronted in the midst of his weariness with God's work in his life, in his world, all around him. See, God is not like some watchmaker who creates his work, he winds it up, and then he simply just steps back and watches it go. He didn't just create the world and put it all into motion and then sit back and just see what happens. God is at work among us. His Holy Spirit is active and moving throughout history, even when we can't pinpoint it. And sure, it's not all, usually a miracle of this wondrous epic proportions, right? Like, like the, the virgin birth is, is a mind-blowing, like history-altering kind of miracle, right? That we can't fully understand. And yet, much of God's work in this world is found in the seemingly insignificant and even in the deeply painful we look at the genealogies, we see it all over the place. Even in the midst of the wariness that we see in that genealogy, we also see God's work in things that would have been cast aside or looked upon as meaningless suffering. I mean, you look at, at names like Rahab where her people were destroyed and yet she's the lone one remaining and she got to be a part of the, the genealogy of Jesus, of Jesus' family. We look at the name Ruth and recognize that her, like, she's in here because she was a widow. Her husband had died. She had lost all hope in this life, and yet God provided a kinsman redeemer. And she got to be a part of God's redemption in the world. And she had no idea that that's what God was up to. And yet God uses what, what others mean for pain, what, what sin wreaks havoc on, as in the story of of, of Joseph in the end of the book of Genesis, what, what's often meant for evil in this world, God uses it for good. Because he's at work. He's not removed from our world. He's at work in our world. And he's at, like, God isn't removed or indifferent from this weary world. That's a huge part of the hope that we have in the midst of our waiting. He's not removed or indifferent from your world, your pain your suffering, your very unextraordinary weary days. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Because he's at work 
for us, for you. And that's the next point upon which the good news in Christmas hinges, is that not only is he at work, not only as we'll get to in a moment, is he with us, but he's at work for us, and he's with us for us. And see, the good news hinges on that because God can be at work, and he could be with us, but that not necessarily be good news, all right? Because a holy God being with sinful people is not good news, all right? And, and God being at work, well, I mean, that could be for our good or for our bad, but what we see here in this next point, the, 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 the thing that makes Christmas such good news for us, that gives us hope in the midst of all kinds of things we're going to wait through, is that he is at work for us, for you and for me. And that's what we see in verse 21 and the, the angel's message to Joseph. As Joseph was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what the passage doesn't mention there is that the name of Jesus means, and literally translated, it means the Lord saves. It means the Lord saves. And so, in other words, the, the name Jesus is given to him because what follows that? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name is this declaration that God saves. And what's implied here? What's made clear here is he will save his people from his sins. Jesus will save his people from his sins. And so when it says the Lord saves, God saves, Jesus then must be God. All right, and that, that's a mind-blowing fact that we're going to come back to here in a few moments. But, but Jesus is given this name with a great declaration about the promise that God is for us. That he's working for us. That in in. Mary becoming pregnant from the Holy Spirit, that God is at work in a miraculous way in the world in this moment, that all of that is for our good. It's for our salvation from our sins. It's to save us from this weariness. So Jesus' name makes this great declaration. But Jesus is unlike, uh, there's other biblical people whose names make all kinds of declarations about God, but they, they actually have no power in their declaration themselves because they're not God themselves, right? It's kind of like, uh, for all you Office fans, Michael Scott, when he says, I declare bankruptcy. And it doesn't, Jim's like, you know that doesn't actually do anything, right? So, but in a similar way, like Jesus, his name declares that the Lord saves and he actually accomplishes the salvation himself. His name then carries with it the power of God because it is God come to dwell with his people. God is at work in the world for us. See, Jesus isn't like some other religious figure or philosopher or spiritual guru. He doesn't simply declare spiritual truths. Instead, he embodies those truths and he establishes them. Get this, Jesus came not just to guide us through our weary world, but to deliver us from the source of our weariness. 
unlike all those other kinds of religious figures, Jesus came not to guide us through a weary world, but he came to deliver us from our source of weariness, to save his people from their sins. That's our source of weariness. It's our sin. We're responsible for this weariness. We have to own that responsibility. But what is sin? We throw that term around a lot in Christian circles, and maybe you're new to, to church or whatever it may be, and you're just like, well, what really is sin? And so let's jump all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 to 3, and what we, we, we begin to see what sin is and how it's connected to weariness. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates all of this world, and it's good, and he's with his people, and there is no weariness. And it's just joy and hope and peace and goodness and presence with God, and flourishing because they have a good king that they're submitting to and they're following after. And yet, in Genesis chapter 3, we see, we see sin enter the world because Adam and Eve, they make the one choice. Take the one fruit that God had said they, they cannot take of because they wanted to be king rather than God. They rebelled against the king. That's what sin is. It's choosing to, to that it's saying, I can be a better king of my life than God can be. I want to rule over my life and and not God. And so it's choosing to make our own way, go our own way, rather than to go God's way. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we see sin enter into the world, and all kinds of weariness explodes onto the scene. Adam and Eve are suddenly ashamed. They hide their nakedness. They run and they flee from God. The presence whose goodness filled their life just moments ago, they are now fleeing from. And then when God confronts them, they blame shift, they break their relationships with one another. And then God brings the consequences of sin into their lives. Because this isn't a surprise to God. He was was at work in the world, he knew what was happening, his plan for redemption was already set even before that happened. And and in Genesis chapter 3, though, he, he sets forth the consequences for sin, and a huge part of those consequences are the wariness in childbearing. Pain, in work, toil, and hardship. A weariness enters into the world. The weariness that you and I feel today is because of their sin, but it's also because of our sin. And then they were put apart from God's presence. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden for their good because sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God means that he has to bring punishment right then and there. He cannot be in the presence of sinful people. And so he puts them out of his presence for their good because he has a plan and he has a promise that he also gives. Even in the midst of those curses, even in the midst of laying out the weariness that they're going to experience, he puts forth a promise of an offspring, of one who will come, who will crush the serpent's head, who will defeat evil and deal with sin once and for all. And we see that thousands of years later fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The offspring come. Finally, come. The one that he promised again to Abraham, that he mentioned again to David in different ways. He made promise after promise, pointing forward to this offspring that would come, that would bring ultimate peace, that would bring ultimate hope, that would get rid of the weariness of this world to bring us back to God himself. Where true flourishing, only there true flourishing can happen. 
And so that brings us back to Jesus, and it brings us back to the hope of Christmas. And Jesus, who lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't live, Jesus comes to take away and save us from our sins. And he did it by living a perfect life, by dying the death that you and I deserve, and raising from the dead three days later. And J.C. Ryle sums it up really well, all that this really entails. He says this, that Jesus saves us from the guilt of sin by washing us in his atoning blood. He saves us from the dominion of sin by putting in our hearts the sanctifying spirit. He saves us from the presence of sin when he takes us out of the world to rest with him. He will save them all from all the consequences of sin when he shall give us a glorious body on the last day. Blessed and holy are Christ's people. From sorrow, cross, and conflict, we are not saved. We're not, we're not just removed from the weariness of this world. We don't just get to, to opt out of it when we come to faith in Christ. From sorrow, cross, and conflict, we are not saved, but we are saved from sin forevermore. Praise God. The good news of Christmas. But wait, there's more. Feel a little like Bob Barker on the prices right there, but um, it's true. There is more. Like the good news continues on. It doesn't just end there with Jesus' name that's given to him and that he's going to save us from our sins. There's more. The good news of Christmas is not only that we're saved from our sins and we're placed in this kind of neutral place in relation to God. We're saved from the consequences of sin, but, but we're also saved into God's presence. And that's what verse 22 is getting at in verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. See, Matthew often highlights how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Over and over again, you'll see that phrase. If you keep reading the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see that phrase over and over again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophets. You'll see it all over the place. But here we're driven back specifically to Isaiah chapter 7, which was a remarkably anxious and weary age in the history of God's people. See, a great king had just died in that time, Uzziah. He had died, and, and, and there had been this long stability This long season of peace, but now suddenly there's chaos. Enemies were pressing in, threats were all around them, and they were waiting for some kind of deliverance. The king, who's not necessarily such a great king, (laughs) is trying to figure out how he can deliver the people of God. And yet Isaiah comes with this message That behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's one of those prophecies that that there's some initial fulfillment that happens in that day, but ultimately it's pointing forward to, and Matthew gives us very great clarity here that it's pointing forward to something much more than a good king back in Isaiah's day. It's pointing forward to God being with us, present with us in reality. And see, this promise was given to God's people in that time to remind them where their immediate and their ultimate hope laid. It wasn't in their ability to navigate the chaos of that time as enemies pressed in around them. It wasn't in their ability to to amass a great 
host of resources to fight against these armies. But their hope was in the presence of God with them. See, what Matthew is pointing us towards is the ultimate hope of this Isaiah passage is found in Jesus. That yes, God is at work for us, but he's also at work with us. He is present with us. And like I mentioned before, in case you missed it, this whole passage is driving towards this point that God, Jesus is God himself. That's why his, his name is he's the fulfillment of being Emmanuel, God with us. Like This is the great mystery of Christmas beyond anything else. Not just the virgin birth, like God can do miracles, he can do incredible, amazing things, but far greater than the virgin birth at Christmas. Like if you believe God's at work in the world, the virgin birth is, is something you can wrap your head around to a certain extent. But the great mystery of Christmas is that God became man. I mean, wonder at that great truth for a second. Jesus is fully God and fully human. 100% both, not just like 50% God, 50% human, like he kind of like went down on the God meter, went up on the human meter. No, 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 like he's fully God, fully human. That's why we call it a mystery. Because it's true, but we can't necessarily fully understand it. And as fully God, he has the power to deliver us from our sins. As fully human, though, he is able to be the sufficient substitute for our sins. And as fully human, he understands our weariness, our struggles, our, all, our struggles with all kinds of temptations, our sufferings, our exhaustions. But as fully God, he has the power to sustain us in our weariness, to give us true hope and to true deliverance from our weariness. And here's how important this is. Matthew's gospel both begins here in chapter 1 with this truth as well as ends with this truth, that God in Jesus is with us. It begins here in Matthew chapter 1 with Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God with us. But then when Jesus, after he's died and rose again and spent some time with his disciples, he gives the great commission. He gives this incredible mission that we, we talk about a lot here, to make disciples of all nations. And he ends this way, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. And then Jesus ascends to the Father. And he's not here bodily with us anymore, but he sends the Holy Spirit. And God truly is with you and with me in a way that even during Jesus' day, he couldn't have been with us. Because he was limited by the human, his human body and his physical presence. But now by his Holy Spirit, he lives in each and every one of us that have trusted and repented of our sins and trusted in his good news. He's with you wherever you go. It's not dependent upon where the fully God, fully human Jesus walked on the earth, but rather he goes wherever you go. He's with you in every moment of your weariness, in every moment of your suffering, in every degree of pain that you're experiencing the fully God, fully human Jesus is present with you by his spirit. It's the good news of Christmas. It's incredible. And a huge part of Christmas is our kids are often like in this wonder at all the things they see. And I just encourage you, as you see kids wondering at just the lights and the amazingness of everything, it would remind you to wonder at the truly amazing things. At Jesus is God at work for you and with you 
in your weariness. You have a hope that can sustain you. Because our waiting didn't end with Jesus' first coming, but it was transformed. God doesn't remove us out of this world, but he, he remains with us in this world. And so we can wait with hope through our weariness for his second coming because of the good news of Christmas. Because God is at work for us and with us. So what's that look like? How, how do we, what's our role in the waiting? Right, we've clearly seen like God's role in the waiting. It's huge, it's amazing, it's marvelous, it's mysterious, it's mind-blowing. But what is our role in the waiting? Because waiting sounds like a really passive thing, right? But we see biblical waiting modeled in Jesus. Or not Jesus, sorry, we do see it in Jesus. We also see it in Joseph, though, here in this passage. In fact, he's really modeling a, a psalm which is referenced here. All right, When it says, for he will save his people from their sins... Matthew is, and the angel is actually alluding to Psalm chapter 130. Psalm 130, which is this psalm that the people of God would have, would have sang, would have prayed, would have, would have talked about as they made their religious journeys to Jerusalem on their way for holy days. And so Joseph would have known this well. And as a just man, as a faithful follower of the law and of God's word, he was, I believe, practicing what Psalm 130 references. We're not going to get in and dig through all of Psalm 130 this morning. I want to read a little bit to us now, though. We're not going to unpack it. Don't worry. You're not going to preach a second sermon from Psalm 130. All right. But I do want to read it because I believe this is what Joseph is modeling, and we'll see it. We'll just return back to Matthew in a second. Encourage you to reflect on this psalm later this week as a, as a way to think more about your, our role in waiting and what that looks like. But Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you then, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And this is what is quoted, what is alluded to in, in Matthew chapter 1. And he will redeem or save Israel from all his iniquities, all his sin. So there's this waiting and this weariness and waiting that the psalmist is, is capturing there. And it's this that I believe Joseph gives us a model to follow. In verses 19 through um, the beginning of verse 20, we see that, that Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her. But as he considered these things, see, Joseph had clarity. And he had even a lawful justification, according to the, the Mishnah and other Jewish writings, that, that he should divorce her, in fact. Not just he could, but he should divorce her. Um, so he had clear ways to move forward, but and humanly speaking he did. But he didn't act rashly. He prayerfully considered these things. And we see him saying that as he considered these things, we can, as a, as a just, faithful man, it, it would have involved prayer. And so our role in waiting starts with prayer. We're called to pray. Our waiting must not just have some like token start with prayer or 
a, a, a prayer that's you know, cast up as a last resort in crisis, but our waiting must be saturated by prayer. In part, as Joseph does, like prayer is, is thinking our thoughts before God, as the psalmist was in Psalm 130. It's thinking our thoughts before God. It's considering things before God and with God, so that even as we're coming to conclusions, we're doing so in his presence and acknowledging our need for him. In many ways, it's like that's a huge aspect of what prayer is all about, particularly our, our role in, in waiting as we pray. It's thinking our thoughts before God and with God, relying upon him, acknowledging our need for him. And so we pray like Joseph does, not just coming to the first rational solution and running after it, but we, we slow ourselves down. We intentionally wait and we pray so that we're not running ahead of the Lord but rather we're allowing him to go before us. And so we pray. And that's one way we see Joseph modeling that for us, the psalmist modeling that for us, but then we also listen. We listen. Very clearly this is what Joseph does when the angel shows up. I mean, I think you and I would very clearly listen if we were awakened to a dream with an angel in it um, and it give us this message, we would listen. But, But what Joseph does is he listens to the promises of God come through the angel. And he... And here's the good news. No, like most of us aren't going to have a dream with an angel that comes to us with some kind of miraculous message like this. But that's actually good news according to Peter because later in one of his letters at the end of the New Testament, Peter declares that we have an even more sure word than the prophets or the angels could give. We have this word. The word of God written clearly before us that we can count on. I don't know about you, but like, what Peter's getting at there is, is very true for me. If I had a dream of an angel or even if I encountered one in real life, like I would second guess that all day long. Like I don't know if it's like somewhat of the skeptic in me or the doubter in me, but like I would, I would just, I would, I would rationalize that away in all kinds of ways, right? Like I ate something funny before I went to bed. Like what, I don't know what that was, but like here we have an even more sure word. It is God's very word to us. And so we not only pray, but we listen to the promises that are here in this word. We listen and trust the promises of God and that ensure that our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in God who goes before us. See, often hopeful waiting means we listen to God's word and we patiently watch for him to work out his promises before us. When we're struggling with finances, we don't just try to come up with a thousand ways that we can provide for ourselves, but we, we listen to his promises and we can be at peace, even as we, we, we'll talk about it in a second, we work, but we patiently watch as God provides. It means resting in his presence with us and his work for us. It's why we listen, so that we would rest in his presence and his work for us. It means listening for how he's already at work rather than running ahead of his work. Hopeful waiting is saturated both in praying before God and listening to God. These are two big aspects of biblical waiting. But let's be clear. Hopeful waiting does not mean doing nothing. All right, this is uh, from Eugene Peterson. Hopeful waiting does not mean doing nothing. It is not a fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, 
of scurrying and worrying. Hopeful waiting is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. And so, yes, hopeful waiting involves slowing down to pray and to listen to God's word. But it also involves work. It doesn't mean we just become passive. We get to work as well on what God has made clear. That's what Joseph does coming out of that dream in verses 24 and 25. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Which is a really significant thing because the giving of the name would have been him formally and officially and legally adopting Jesus as his son. And thus he's of the line of David. He's fulfilling the promises that God has provided all before. And so he, Joseph takes the clear steps of obedience that he knows he's called to. Despite the public shame and the difficulty that would have come with it, he even does it, though he doesn't fully understand all the implications of it, though he doesn't fully understand how all this works or whatever, but he gets to work on what is clear. And so in other words, for us, hopeful waiting means that we take the steps of obedience that have been made clear in God's word. And sometimes we're not going to have clarity on a host of things, and we may not even under, fully understand why God's word is calling us to do what he's calling us to do, but we do them anyway even when they only bring more pain in our lives. Because what we're called to is not a life of ease and comfort and kind of perpetual happiness, but rather we're called to die to ourselves as our vision for next semester as a church is, is to die to self, to take up our cross like Jesus did, to follow in his example. And just like Joseph did, we get to work doing the clear things of God no matter the consequences. See, hopeful waiting is praying before God, it's listening to God, and it's working with God as far as he's made clear for us. And so as we wrap up this morning, know that you don't simply have to push through the waiting. You don't have to endure the weariness on your own. The good news of Christmas is hope for our waiting. No matter how weary you are of the waiting, and I know some of us in here this morning are incredibly wary. I know I am. We're incredibly wary of so many things. But remember this, church. Jesus is at work with you, and he's at work for you. Let's praise God for Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. So grateful for the good news of Christmas. So grateful for the simple, yet clear news that you are at work for us and with us. God, I pray that we would lean into that. That we would find hope in that. That we would find comfort in that. That we would find our peace in that. That we would be able to endure. That we would be sustained by the hope that you've given us. Help us to marvel and wonder it the good news that Jesus is fully God and fully human and that through him you made a way for us to come back to you and to be with you for all of eternity, to walk through this weary world with you and in your presence. God, we praise you.
And I pray that, God, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know the joy and the hope of that good news this morning, that they would turn from their sin, turn from following their own way, turn from trying to find solutions to their weariness in any place other than Jesus, and that they would trust in Jesus, and they would enjoy your work for them and be with you today. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.